following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw, for our teaching resources, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Okay, so what I want to do this morning is uh, something a little bit different. Most of the time what we do uh, in, in preaching at Shaw is most weeks we take a passage of the Bible. This is our stock and trade. Take a passage of the Bible and we would expound this passage uh, in terms of its original meaning and its original context through to contemporary application. That's called expository preaching. That's our basic diet of preaching here at Shaw. That's what we do week in, week out, because we believe that's how God's people are best fed and served. But this morning, I want to do something slightly differently. Rather than focusing on any one particular passage in the Bible, I want to talk about the Bible as a whole. Uh, rather than telling one of the stories in the Bible, I want to tell you the story of the Bible. And I want to step back, because it seems to me that one of the one of the issues that Christians have when it comes to the Bible, I think when it comes to our Christian lives in general, is that when and if you ever read the Bible, what you tend to do, let's say you're reading a passage in Ruth, or you're reading some verses from Isaiah, or you're reading one of the parables of Jesus in Matthew, or you're reading some words from Paul in Ephesians, whatever it is, we tend to grab a verse here, or a passage here, or a collection of verses there, and we read them in isolation, and we're not really sure how these verses or this paragraph really fits into anything else in the Bible, how it all comes together, or how what I'm reading over here in Ruth has any relationship to what I'm reading over here in Ephesians. They can just seem like completely different worlds. And so because of that, we tend to read the Bible in a pretty disconnected kind of way. It tends to be fragmented. It tends to be piecemeal. And we're not really reading the Bible for all it's worth. We're not really then getting the most out of this book. And it takes away enjoyment as well. It's not as enjoy we're not getting as much out of it. We're not as nourished by it because we're getting little bits and pieces. And one of the most helpful things, I think, for any Christian is to understand and become aware of the big story of the Bible. And by that, when I talk about the Bible as a story, I don't mean that it's a myth. I don't mean that it's a fairy tale. I don't mean that it's fiction. I just mean that the Bible, from beginning to end, from Genesis to Revelation, tells one story. There is one big narrative that weaves its way through the entirety of the Bible. Even though there are lots of little stories in the Bible, they all come together into this one great big sweeping narrative of what God is up to, what he has done, what he is doing, and what he has yet to do with humanity and this world and creation. And that doesn't mean every part of the Bible is a story. There's all sorts of genres within the Bible. You read prophecy, you read history, you read parable, you read proverb, you read songs, you read gospel, you read epistles, you read apocalyptic. There's all sorts of literary genres, but they all hang together around the story. They all come together to form this one big sweeping story. And the story really is of God reconciling the world to himself through Jesus. That's the story. That's the center of the story. So what I thought I'd do this morning is just try in about half an hour to tell the story. The whole Bible in half an hour. Should be easy, right? 30 minutes, whole Bible, Genesis to Revelation. If I can do that, that's a good day in the office. And then we can all go home. 
So I, because I think this is important, I want to start the year with this. If we can get an appreciation for the whole story, then I think when you read the Bible, little parts of it, it should start to make more sense. So we're going to tell the story uh, from beginning to end. And the way that I want to do this, there's a lot of ways of telling the story of Scripture, different, different uh, roads to the summit of the mountain, so to speak. The, the way I've found the most helpful is to think about the Bible as a six-act play. So imagine that you're going to see a, a play at the theater, maybe a Shakespearean play. I want you to think of the Bible like a six-act play, a drama with six acts to it. It's not all my original thinking here. I'm drawing on a couple of sources, people that have looked at this. And I've found this a very helpful way to think through the storyline of Scripture in six acts. And so I want to just talk through each of these acts that follow one after the other. And that hopefully will be a bit of a framework rather than just one storyline to think of it in these six movements, if you like, gives us a bit of a, a framework to think about Scripture. Okay, you ready? Let's go. So they all kind of start with the letter C. Right? That was about the best I could do except for kind of one of them. I tried for some alliteration. I'm not very good at alliteration. We're going to give it a go. All right, so there's a lot of C's in this. All right, so six acts. The first act is... Hey, all right, this is going to be good. You guys can guess as we go. A lot of you know the story already. Creation. So first words in the Bible, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The Bible starts with the story of creation. Of course, the story of God precedes anything that God made. God himself came before creation. God came before the world. And so even before Genesis 1, even before the first words in the Bible, God himself existed. And this is important to understand that God's always existed. In fact, God existed before there was time. God existed as Father, Son, and Spirit. We call that the Trinity, this triune community of being, Father, Son, and Spirit, who enjoyed this beautiful community within themselves. Don't picture a static, sterile, unchanging, uncaring kind of God. This is a beautiful community of fellowship and life and love being given and received between Father and Son and Spirit continually and eternally. And that life and that love that was generated within the, within the triune life of God, it spilled over to create all that exists. And this is the first two chapters of the Bible, Genesis, that narrate the creation of the cosmos, the universe. Uh, God didn't create the world because he was needy. This is important. God didn't create the world out of any sense of deficiency in his own being. He didn't create the world because he needed a friend. Didn't create the world because he was lonely. Didn't create the world because he wanted to be dependent on someone else. God created the world out of total and utter freedom. Total and utter freedom. It was that the life and the love within God's own being bubbled up to overflow out. And the Spirit of God brought forth the world. And so you have in the first two chapters of the Bible, and those are the only two chapters in this act. Act 1, creation. It's just Genesis 1 and 2. And it's the story of God creating the world. God creates everything, not just the earth, but the heavens. Creates the universe, creates the galaxies. He breathes planets and stars and solar systems into space, creates the sun and the moon, and creates this privileged planet, Earth, on which we live. And he fills the Earth with all kinds of life, animal life, plant life. And then as the pinnacle of his creation, he creates humanity. And it's very clear as you read the biblical story that when God creates the first human beings, Adam and Eve, that human beings have a really important place but they're created with glory. They're created with honor. Psalm 8 says, you have crowned us with glory and honor. And human beings are really valuable to God. 
You see that straight away as soon as he makes them. This is the summit. This is the pinnacle of God's creation, human beings. If you compare the creation story in the Bible to other stories floating around other ancient cultures of how the world is made, you find there's a huge contrast in how human beings are talked about. A lot of other ancient cultures like the Babylonians, human beings, they were made just to serve the gods, to do drudgery, to do manual labor, menial tasks, to keep the gods happy. In the biblical story, in the Bible, human beings have this incredibly precious and privileged and valuable place. And God wants relationship with them. From the very beginning, God moves towards his human creatures with love. And he wants to walk with them and talk with them and do life with them, even though he's God and and they are human. And so there's this relationship that's established there. In fact, God creates human beings in his image. It's the phrase that's used in Genesis 1. He makes us in his image. And what that means is that we reflect who God is in some ways. That just as God is a relational being within himself, Father, Son, and Spirit, so we are created fundamentally as relational beings, hardwired for relationship. Relationship with God, first and foremost. Relationship, healthy relationship with ourselves healthy relationships with one another, and relationship with the broader world, culture, society, and even creation that God's placed us within. And so God made us in his image, created us in the context of these relationships, and gave human beings this mandate to multiply, to fill the earth, and extend his loving rule and his creativity throughout the earth, to carry on this creative work of God by continuing to populate and subdue and nurture and tend this earth that he's placed us in. That's act one. That's creation. Now, that didn't last long, that pristine state of affairs. Only two chapters in the Bible, and then you get to chapter three, and the wheels come off. And we get to act two, which is crisis. And Genesis 3 through to Genesis 11 are the story of everything falling apart. God places humanity in the Garden of Eden and tells them there's just one tree that you cannot eat from, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And yet the serpent comes along, who represents Satan, the enemy of God, who opposes all of God's plans and purposes. And he tempts Eve to eat this forbidden fruit. She gives some to Adam. And this is the entrance of sin into the biblical story, into human existence. These human beings sin. And sin Don't think about sin so much as breaking rules, although it certainly includes that. Sin is about breaking relationship. It's doing something that violates our relationship with God and the way that was supposed to function. And by eating from that tree, that's exactly what Adam and Eve did. Effectively, what they're saying is, rather than human beings orbiting around God, we would like God to orbit around us. Thanks very much. We would rather be in the center of things and have God dealing with us on our terms so we have things our way and we live this autonomous, independent life. It's not that they rejected God. They just wanted to have things their way. They wanted to bring God down to their level. Sound familiar? We keep on doing this, don't we? This is life. This is human existence. We do this every day. And fundamentally, what that first sin did is it ruptured the relationship that these human beings had with God. In fact, it fractured the image of God in human beings. All of these relationships became broken. Their relationship with God became broken. Then their relationship with themselves became broken. They experienced shame for the first time. They experienced guilt for the first time. And then as the story continues, the relationships between human beings and one another start to be broken. You get to the next chapter of the Bible, Genesis 4, and you see the first murder take place between Adam and Eve's sons. Cain murders 
Abel. And you start to see the effects of sin are not just affecting these two people, but they're rippling out now to affect their family, to affect the whole structure of human relationships. You get to Genesis 6 and the story of Noah, and the Bible says human beings had filled the earth, but there was wickedness throughout the earth. The hearts of human beings had become wicked, that people weren't following God. People weren't bearing the image of God well. But all these relationships between God, self, others, the world, they're all broken down. So God sends a flood, catastrophic flood, to wipe out all humanity and start again through one family, Noah and his family. And they begin then again the program of populating and restoring and multiplying and nurturing God's world. But it's not long before again sin runs rampant. You get to Genesis 11. And the Tower of Babel, and again, sin has spread. Every time God judges, starts again, sin just continues to spread. It's this poison that's taken hold of human hearts. So the Tower of Babel, in Genesis 11, human beings want to build a tower to the heavens to prove how great they are, to try and be like God. And so God judges them. He gives them different languages to confuse them. They are scattered. This is the beginning of language, uh, different languages and various civilizations and cultures as they're scattered from Babel out across the known world. And so that, that section of the Bible from Genesis 3 to Genesis 11 is really the story of sin wreaking havoc on every part of God's world. And the message of those chapters is that sin will damage and has damaged every part of God's good creation. This world that God stepped back at the beginning and said it is very good has now been shot through with wickedness and violence and corruption and just human hearts that have turned away from God. Things have become pretty low. So then we move from Act 2 to Act 3. And this is calling. The name of this third act is calling. And it begins in Genesis 12. It's the longest act in the, in the whole series of Acts goes from Genesis 12 right through to the end of Malachi in the Old Testament. And you could divide this into various movements, but the whole thing is calling, and it begins with the story of this guy, Abraham, in Genesis 12. And God appears to this guy, who's pretty much a nobody. He just kind of comes out of the story. God appears to him on a cloudless night, and he says, Abraham, I want you to go from your father's home, from your land. I want you to go to a land that I will show you. And Abraham became Abraham. I'm going to give you a son. Even though Abraham was in his 70s and he and his wife were past childbearing age, God says, I'm going to give you a son. And through that son, I'm going to give you more descendants than the stars in the sky, more descendants than the sand on the seashore. I'm going to give you your own land for this nation that will come from you. And through you, Abraham, all peoples of the earth will eventually be blessed. There are extraordinary promises that are found there in Genesis 12. And you could see the rest of the whole biblical story being the fulfillment of those promises as the remedy to the problem of sin that had infected God's good creation. The rest of the story is God fulfilling those promises to Abraham. And so sure enough, Abraham and Sarah have a son, Isaac. Isaac has a son, Jacob. Jacob, his other name is Israel. And Jacob, Israel, has 12 sons who become the heads of the 12 tribes of Israel. That's where the nation of Israel comes from. And through the adventures of Joseph, one of Jacob's sons, these 12 sons and their dad end up in Egypt. And they end up as a slave people in Egypt. They become so numerous 
by this time, they've become more than a family. They're, they're a clan. They're a huge people. They're on their way to becoming a nation in their own right. And they become a threat to the rulers of Egypt, to the pharaoh in Egypt at the time. So they become slaves. He turns them all into slaves. And for 400 years, the Hebrew people, the descendants of Abraham, are slaves in the land of Egypt. But then God raises up a man named Moses. And those of you who were here for the Exodus series, you remember this story? Through these extraordinary miracles, God frees his people from Egypt through the plague sent upon Egypt, through the parting of the Red Sea. God frees his people. The Israelites are able to cross through on dry ground. They're led out of Egypt. They're rescued from being slaves. And they're led then through the desert to the foot of this mountain called Mount Sinai. And that's where God enters into a special relationship with this people, Israel, that have now become a nation in their own right. He enters into a covenant with them, which is an agreement or a contract between two parties. And God says to them, I will be your God. You will be my people. Of all the nations on the earth, you will be to me a special people, an elect people. And so there is this unique relationship that is going on between God and his people. But God says, hey, it's conditional on you keeping all these laws I'm about to give you. And so God gives Israel all of these laws. You read these in Exodus, in Leviticus, in Numbers, in Deuteronomy. This is usually the part of the Bible that people get to when they make a commitment to read the Bible in one year when they give up. They get to about Leviticus and it's like, what on earth is this? All these sacrifices, all these laws about dietary requirements and circumcision and personal hygiene. And what is all of this? Well, it fits into these laws that God has given Israel. And he says, if you keep these laws, then it will go well for you in the land. If you keep these laws, then... You'll, you'll prosper in this land that I'm going to lead you into that I promised to Abraham. But if you do not keep these laws, it's not going to go well for you. You'll be overrun by your enemies. You'll be forced out of the land. I'll be against you. It's not going to be a good thing. And so right there, you have these promises that God is saying, you've got two choices, faithfulness or unfaithfulness. And here's the consequences. They're spelled out very clearly in Leviticus 26. And so God leads Israel through the Sinai wilderness onto the land of Canaan, the land of promise. Takes them 40 years to get there. Should have only taken a few days, but because of their disobedience, takes 40 years of wandering around. Finally, they get there. And the book of Joshua in the Bible is the book of Israel conquering the land. Under the leadership of Joshua, Moses' successor, Israel comes in. They wage this incredible battle, this military campaign, and they take the land of Canaan. Israel now has their own land and they settle down. But when the dust settles on this huge military campaign, what you see is that Israel's there in the land of Canaan, but there's also all these other pockets of nations that they've never driven out. They didn't trust God enough to drive all the peoples out, and so they end up living in amongst all of these other people groups. And over time, actually doesn't take that long at all, Israel becomes contaminated and corrupted by the practices of of these other nations. Because of course these other nations they worshiped other gods. They bowed down to Baals and Asherahs and whoever else and had all their shrines and statues and Israel begins wanting to be like the nations around them and adopt the practices and the customs of the nations around them. And so there's this downward spiral. This is where the book of Judges comes in. As Israel gives up on God and just becomes Canaanized, adopting the practices of the Canaanites around them. And so God will allow the enemies to come in and conquer them. Israel will cry out to God and he'll raise up a deliverer. But then Israel will go back to its own ways again. And so God will allow them to be conquered again. That's the spiral that you find in the book of Judges. On and on and on it goes. Until Israel finally asks God for a king. And they say, what we want is to be like all these other nations around them. 
that have a king. We want to be a monarchy. We want to have a king. And even though God's not pleased with that request because he was their king, he gives in and he allows them to have a king. And so the first king that Israel gets, King Saul, he's a bit of a mixed bag. Starts well, ends pretty badly. After him, you have King David, one of the great kings. Those words that I read this morning uh, during worship were the words of David, one of the great celebration uh, songs of David in 1 Samuel. And David was a man after God's own heart. He followed God, and yet he still sinned spectacularly by committing adultery with Bathsheba. I mean, these people that God uses through the Bible, they're not pillars of virtue. These are deeply flawed people, including David. After David comes Solomon, another great king that expanded the borders of Israel. After Solomon comes Rehoboam, who split the kingdom, split Israel in two. It becomes a divided nation. Israel in the north, 10 tribes. Judah in the south, just one and a half tribes, really. And so from then, Israel is existing in two nations. And they, sometimes they're fighting against each other. And there comes this successive line of kings, kings of the north and kings of the south, and for the most part, these kings are part of the problem. Rather than trying to restore Israel, they just lead her further and further into spiritual decline. There's the odd exception, kings like Asa and Josiah. But for the most part, these kings just continue to adopt the practices of the nations around them. And Israel loses all of her distinctiveness as a people. This distinctive relationship she has with God just becomes diluted by all these other religious practices that get mixed in to Israel's worship. And so God starts to send prophets to Israel. He raises up these men called prophets, and they speak God's word to his people. Prophets like Isaiah, like Jeremiah, like Ezekiel, uh, and some of the minor prophets. You might have heard of Malachi, Habakkuk, and so on. And these prophets, the best way to think about the prophets is they are calling Israel back to the covenant. We think of prophets as kind of telling the future. That's only a small part of what they did. Primarily, they were calling Israel back to the covenant. And they were saying, you need to give up all this stuff you're doing. Sometimes they'd speak to other nations too. But they were primarily calling Israel back to the covenant and saying, you need to come back to faithfulness to God. Come and renew your relationship with Him. Because if you don't, it will be as God said. You'll be cast out of the land. It will, it will not go well for you. But if you, if you return to God, He is so willing to forgive you. He's so willing to take you back, but you have to come back to him. So the prophets warned Israel time and time and time and time and time again. But by and large, Israel didn't listen. They refused to listen, and they continued on this slide towards apostasy and rebellion towards God until God finally fulfilled the ultimate judgment against Israel, and he allowed them to be carted off into exile, conquered and taken away to another nation. Israel in the north was conquered by Assyria, Judah in the south, conquered by Babylon, and many of its people carted off into exile. And there's a, there's a little resonance there, by the way, with the story of Adam and Eve way back at the beginning. That when Adam and Eve sinned, they were cast out of the garden. God sent them away, off to the east. When Israel finally gets to the lowest point and God can't take it anymore, they are cast out of the land, sent away to the east, sent away to a land far from her home. And that period of time that Israel was in exile outside of her land was one of the lowest times in the whole history of that nation. It was a national tragedy because so much of Israel's identity was tied to the land. This was the land God had promised them. This was the land where the temple was in Jerusalem, where God's special presence had come down. Now all of that's gone. And there's this question of whether God is even with them. 
in exile? Is God even here? And so you get Psalms like Psalm 137, by the rivers of Babylon, we sat down and wept. How can we sing the Lord's song in a strange land? The sense of national grieving and mourning. You've got to feel the heaviness of Israel's exile. It is the low point in the biblical story. And yet even in exile, the prophets again begin to speak. And prophets like Jeremiah start speaking of a hope beyond exile, of restoration beyond judgment. And Jeremiah starts saying things like, God promises to make a new covenant with the nation of Israel. You might have heard that prophecy. That's where it fits into the Bible. Jeremiah says, God through Jeremiah says, I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel. And God promises to restore them, to bring them out of captivity, to renew his relationship. He promises that things after exile will be even better than they were before exile. And so there's this new sense of hope that's restored within the nation as they look forward to these promises being fulfilled. Well, 70 years after Israel goes into exile, they're finally sent home. The political winds shift, the Persians swing into power, they've got a more lenient foreign policy, the Israelites are sent home. And so under the leadership of people like Zerubbabel uh, and Nehemiah, uh, Ezra the priest, the Israelites come back to Jerusalem, they rebuild the city, they rebuild the walls, they rebuild the temple. And there's a sense of national renewal. As they're back in their home, they're back in the land, the temple's built again, and they renew their commitment to serving God wholeheartedly. But as the Old Testament closes, and this really is now the final scene in the Old Testament, as the curtain draws on the Old Testament story, there's this great sense of anticlimax. Because Israel is back in her land. And yet so many of the promises remain unfulfilled. Israel is still an occupied people. Passed from one nation to another under the boot of the Persians, then the Greeks, and then eventually the Romans. She's rebuilt the temple, but the presence of God has never filled the temple again, as he did under Solomon. Israel never has a king again, as they did with David and Solomon. And so there's this sense of, well, Israel has returned to her land, but God has not yet returned to his people. And even after exile, the problem of sin remains. And you see that clearly when you read the post-exilic prophets like Malachi and Habakkuk, who are chastising the people once again for falling back into habits of sin. Even after all the ups and downs of Israel, this problem of sin is still endemic to humanity. So as the Old Testament closes, there's a big question mark hanging in the air. Is God going to be faithful to those promises he made to Abraham way back then? What's the future and the hope for God's people? And how will the story end? And that's the context into which Jesus of Nazareth steps. And we come to Act 4, Christ. And when you think about Jesus, so often we think about Jesus as if he could have dropped into history any time, any place, doesn't really matter. He just came to earth, died on the cross for our sins, went back to heaven. Well, yes, he did do those things. But when Jesus came to earth, he stepped into the flow of a story that had been going on for thousands of years. He stepped into the current of a stream and continued to carry that stream forward in a new and surprising direction. But he stepped into a huge story that was already underway. One of the first things out of Jesus' mouth when he starts his public ministry, he says, the kingdom of heaven is near. Well, every Jew who had read the Torah knew what the kingdom of heaven was about. This was the kingdom God was going to set up when he came back and he renewed everything and he fulfilled all these promises. It was what the prophets spoke of. 
And yet as Jesus keeps on teaching, it becomes clear that this kingdom is not the one people were expecting. For one thing, it's not a great political kingdom, a big military kingdom. Jesus seems completely disinterested in overthrowing the Romans. In fact, he says things like, if a Roman soldier asks you to carry his pack one mile, carry it two. What happened to this great rise up and throw off the shackles of bondage and we're going to be a great nation again? It's not happening. The kingdom Jesus starts talking about is this new way of living in relationship with God, in relationship with others, in relationship with the world. It's a kingdom in which the image of God is being restored. It's a kingdom whose marks are not power and coercion and force, but humble, self-giving love. And as Jesus continues talking, it becomes clear that this kingdom is not just going to be a national kingdom purely for Israel, purely for Jewish people. It certainly includes Jews. But now the boundaries of who can be part of this people are thrown wide open. Because Jesus says to Jews, don't think that just because you're children of Abraham, everything's going to be okay. From these stones, God will raise up children of Abraham. Now the true descendants of Abraham, spiritually speaking, are all those who love and follow and serve Jesus. The very makeup of Israel as the people of God is being redefined and reconfigured around the person of Jesus. And it's clear that this person at the center of it all, Jesus of Nazareth, is no ordinary guy. He's not even just a messenger of God or a great prophet because he goes around saying things like, I and the Father are one. And if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Jesus is saying he is the embodiment of God himself on earth. The king of this kingdom is God. Finally, God has come back to rescue and redeem his people and establish his kingdom. And he is doing it in and through the person of Jesus Christ. All this takes us to the cross, the death of Jesus. There's a lot that we could say about what happened on the cross, but let me boil it down to two things. Firstly, on the cross, Jesus takes the curse of Israel's sin upon himself. As a Jewish person carrying the weight of his people on his shoulders, he becomes and he carries the curse that Israel should have suffered for their breaking of the covenant with God. But secondly and more broadly, Jesus takes upon himself the full weight of all humanity's sin. Not just the sin of Israel, but the sin of all human beings. Every single one of us, all of our failure, all of our frailty, all of our flaws, all of our rebellion against God, all the ways in which we have failed to be God's image bearers, all of that was placed upon Jesus on the cross. He carried it. He absorbed it. He paid for it so we wouldn't have to. And then... On the third day, on the Sunday after Jesus was crucified on the Friday, Jesus was raised physically, bodily from the dead by God the Father. It's an extraordinary miracle, the pinnacle miracle of the Bible, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. wasn't just resuscitated, wasn't reincarnation. This was resurrection, physical, human resurrection. But now Jesus has this glorified body, incredible, dramatic miracle. But more than that, it's now the beginning of this great kingdom Jesus had talked about. It's the turning of the seasons so that winter is over and spring is here. The whole course of history is now changed. And the resurrection becomes the first installment of this new world, this new kingdom, this new state of affairs that Jesus is now bringing about through all those who love and serve and follow him. Jesus continues on earth then for 40 days and then ascends to heaven in front of his disciples. And before he goes, he commissions them. 
and says, go and make disciples of all nations. Teach people, baptize people, encourage people to be my followers. He commissions his followers. Indirectly, he commissions all of us to continue the work that he had started. And this leads us to Act 5, church. As Jesus ascends to heaven, initially his followers are just sitting around, not quite sure what to do. So Jesus is gone. What do we do now? And Jesus had said to them, when I go, I'm going to send a helper. I'm going to send an advocate. I'm going to send the Spirit. And sure enough, at the Feast of Pentecost, as his followers are gathered in the upper room, this is Acts chapter 2 now, the Spirit of God comes powerfully upon them, gives them tongues of fire, the power to speak in other languages, and they become filled with the permanent abiding presence of the Holy Spirit. Now, those of us who are Christians, we kind of take that for granted, that we have the Holy Spirit living within us. This was the first time it became a permanent reality. The Holy Spirit had come and gone through the Old Testament in many ways, but never dwelt with a person in their heart, within their being, for the permanence of their life before this point. And that's now what's happened to Jesus' followers. They become filled with the Spirit. They have the Spirit. 3,000 people become followers of Jesus on that day, and they form this community which is called the Ecclesia, the church. And these little churches, sometimes small, sometimes bigger, they generally met in people's homes. They were a ragtag group of people, but they loved Jesus they gathered to worship just like we do. They gathered to take the Lord's Supper like we do. They encouraged each other. They loved each other and helped each other. The Bible says there was no needy person among them because whenever there was needs, they would meet them, no matter what the cost, even if it meant selling houses and giving the money to those in need. That's what they would do. And they were a people on mission. They were part of what God was doing in the world, and they were passionate about sharing the love of Jesus with others and showing the love of Jesus to others around them. And the church begins to spread, ironically, through persecution. As the Jews, in particular, the Jewish ruling authorities, clamp down on the church, try to snuff it out. Church is scattered, places like Antioch, but it continues to grow. It continues to flourish, continues to thrive. In the midst of all this, God appears to a guy named Paul, who was one of the most ardent opponents of the Jesus movement of the church. He never knew Jesus personally, but he hated Jesus and he hated his followers. He was a Pharisee. Paul believed the whole Jesus movement thing was absolute blasphemy. But God met Paul on the road to Damascus and powerfully changed his heart so that Paul came to see Jesus was the true Messiah of Israel, the one who was promised long ago, the fulfillment of all Israel's hopes and dreams, hopes and dreams of humanity. And Paul could never see things the same way again. He became a devoted follower of Jesus and he became the one commissioned to take the gospel, to take the message of Jesus beyond the Jews, into new nations, new territories, new languages. And so Paul went on these missionary ventures. Beyond Israel, he pushed into Turkey, pushed into Greece, pushed into Italy, got as far as Rome, may have got as far as Spain, and kept on going, kept on circling around the Mediterranean, planting these little communities of people in urban centers around the Mediterranean, often very dysfunctional churches, I mean, you don't, you don't want to see these churches as great models always of how to be a church. They had all kinds of problems. But Paul keeps moving around and encouraging them and writing letters to them. That's where so many of the letters now, New Testament, come from. Letters like Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Thessalonians, Corinthians, so on. They're all letters of Paul. And other apostles wrote letters to nurturing and encouraging these churches who were seeking to be Christ in their own ways, in their own cities, in their own communities, 
worshipping communities, loving God, loving each other, loving the world just like we are, seeking to be a redemptive presence in their own location. And the church continued to grow, continued to spread. The New Testament itself was written by about the end of the first century. By the end of the first century, everything in our Bibles was written. But the story the Bible tells continues. That's the important point. The story carries on. The church continued to grow and flourish and thrive. It continued to move throughout the world and share the love of God and be a conduit of God extending his kingdom in the world. And it continues to do so today. So we're in this story. This is so important. We're in Act 5. This drama of salvation, this six-act play, is carrying on. It wasn't all finished when the Bible was finished being written. The drama continues. We're in it. We continue to be the church. We're the people of God. We're commissioned and called to make disciples, to be disciples, and to show God's love to a broken and hurting world as He works in us and through us by the power of His Spirit. We're part of this story. This is where we're supposed to find ourselves and find a lens for looking at life. And we do all this in anticipation of the final act in the great six-act play, new creation. See, I couldn't get every word starting with C. I had to use an N. New creation. The final act is yet to come. And the Bible, the Bible nowhere spells out all the intricate details of this act in perfect clarity for us to see. It gives us snapshots. One writer describes it as looking into a fog. You can make out some objects, but you don't see everything. But through parts of books like Revelation and Daniel, Isaiah, and parts of the Gospels, Jesus himself talked about that. There's enough that we can say with certainty about this final act. One thing is that we know Jesus will return. The word the Bible uses is the appearing, the parousia. There will be an appearing. Jesus himself will reappear physically, bodily, on earth, not as a baby in a manger as he came 2,000 years ago, but as a conquering king in the fullness of his glory to usher in the fullness of his kingdom on earth. When he comes, the Bible is also very clear, there'll be a judgment. There'll be a judgment of every human being who has ever lived, whether you think this is true or not, whether you believe in God or not, whatever religion you may happen to be, or if you're an absolute atheist, there will still be a judgment for you. You will still stand before the great white throne of judgment and give an account for your life. And that judgment will be based upon one thing and one thing only. It's not going to be about how good you are. It's not going to be about whether you're right or wrong about various things. It's not going to be about whether you've believed the right stuff or been taught the right stuff in Sunday school. It will purely be about whether you belong to Jesus, whether you know him personally whether you have a relationship with him personally, whether you've received his forgiveness for your sin and entered into the eternal life that he has promised you. That and that alone is the basis of the final judgment. That and that alone is the basis upon which our names will be written in the Lamb's book of life. And for all those whose names are found in that book, we'll be ushered in to the new creation, the Bible calls it the new heavens and the new earth. Isaiah uses that phrase. John of Patmos picks it up in Revelation. The new heavens and the new earth. And it's this sense, you know, when we think about the final destination of the world or the, the God's final plans, we often think about Christians being kind of taken away to some other realm called heaven. And yet the final destination, when you read Revelation 21, 22, the final destination for God's people is right here. That God's intention 
is to renew, reinvigorate, and redeem this physical earth that we're now living in. A new heavens and a new earth. Revelation 21 talks about, I saw the new Jerusalem coming down from heaven to earth, and God's dwelling is now among his people. And so two things will be united in the new creation. Heaven and earth will be united. At the moment, they're separate realms. People who die go to heaven if they love Jesus. But in the final act, heaven and earth will come together. God's presence will so permeate earth, God will be here, so that by definition will make this earth heaven. Heaven and earth will become one, and God and his people will become one. God's presence will be here, his kingdom will be established, kingdom of peace, kingdom of righteousness, kingdom of joy, and everything that God intended for this world and for our lives in the beginning will finally be fulfilled. The image of God will be restored. We'll have perfect relationship with God, perfect relationship with self, with others, with the world. And as I've said before, I imagine, it's only imagination, but I imagine on that day, God may turn to Abraham and say, you see, Abraham, I told you. I told you I'd make good on that promise. All the way back in Genesis 12, these promises to Abraham finally will be fulfilled. They're fulfilled in and through Christ, but they'll be finally realized in the new creation when there will be people, the great community of the redeemed from every tongue, every tribe, and every nation that people promised to Abraham will be there worshiping Father and Son and Spirit and enjoying eternity together. That's the final chapter of the story. So that is the story in a nutshell, in a little bit over 30 minutes. Turned out to be 40. That's the story. And the, the point of all this is two things. One, that, that I hope this year, when you're reading the Bible, and I hope you do read the Bible, that whether you're reading some isolated little verse in Ezekiel or one of the parables in Luke, that you can connect it to this great big drama that covers the whole Bible. And if you want to read more about that story, understand it more, email me. There's some great resources that will help you to get your head around it even better. But I hope that you can connect it because it will just replenish. It'll, it'll nourish your reading of Scripture. You'll get more out of the Bible. You'll read it for all it's worth. And secondly, I hope that this story that I've told you this morning becomes your story, that it becomes the defining story of your life, that it becomes the lens through which you view yourself, through which you view relationships, through which you view God, through which you view all of history, and through which you view your purpose and your calling and our purpose and our calling as a church because this is the story in which we are called to be a part and to be part of moving the story forward. It's an incredible privilege. It's the story of God and it's our story together. So let's celebrate that story. Let's know the story and understand that story and live out God's great redemptive drama all the days of our lives we have. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the beauty of the Bible and the way, God, that this book was written over thousands of years by so many people on different continents and includes so many different books and, and genres of literature. And yet, God, in your providence, in your wisdom, you've just pulled it all together and you've enabled this beautiful story to shine forth of your redeeming and reconciling work among us. Father, we thank you. We thank you for all that you have done up to this point in time and up to this day and age. 
We thank you for all that you've done through Jesus. We thank you for all that you are yet to do. I pray for us as a church that we would find our place in the story, that we'd take up our part in the story and play our part in this amazing, unfolding drama of salvation. And we thank you that at the center of it all is Jesus. Amen. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources, or to donate to our teaching resource ministry, or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.